Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to this month's Marketing Week Meets. Today we are coming from the Festival of Marketing and our guest is Mark Ritson. Columnist, consultant, professor and all-round huge authority on marketing, Mark is never short of an opinion or two in his championing of good old-fashioned marketing fundamentals and his rejection of consensus thinking. Thank you. Thank you. The session was billed as Ask Mark Ritson. And that's a message for me in the sense that I have some questions prepared, but it's also probably more of a direct instruction for you. Now, Mark obviously has written for Marketing Week for, oh God, almost nine years now. And he gets to, from his uh, column pulpit every week, tell you about what you're doing wrong. Actually, on occasion, to give him his due, what you're doing right as well. So this is your opportunity to ask him. Now, a traditional question, if you like, is mm. why did you get into this merry-go-round of marketing? I always wanted to do it. And all I ever wanted to do was marketing. And, and in the 80s, it wasn't very easy to do a degree in marketing. I mean, I broke my English teacher's heart by not wanting to go to Oxford and do English or any of that. I wanted to go and do marketing at the best marketing university in the country, which I thought was at the time Lancaster. And so I cannot explain why it was that way, but that was always what I wanted to do. And later on, I think it's important, I never wanted to be anything else. And, and when I did my PhD in marketing, also back at Lancaster, I was really unhappy with British marketing academics because after about two beers, they wanted to be something else. You know, they wanted to be a comedian or they wanted to work in consulting or they wanted to look at narratives and I really didn't find my place in England. And I literally just wanted to do marketing. And so I ended up in America because I found marketing professors there that were like me. I mean, obviously, much more knowledgeable and famous and old, but were like me in the sense that they just really loved marketing. So it's, that's all I've ever wanted. That's all I will ever want to do. Have you ever pondered an actual career as a marketing director, CMO? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, once I nearly became the CMO of a very large American corporation just once. And it came... Are you allowed to name no, said corporation? No, uh, It's a very famous retailer, and it came down to a big private equity play. I was recruited, and I'd signed up. And it came down to whether President Trump was going to approve a certain deal or not, and he didn't. But I was going, yeah, I was on my way. Hang so, on a minute. This um, was recently. Then. It was relatively recent, yeah. <laughs> well done, you spotted that. No, no. It Sorry, was, I'm just doing the maths in my head. A couple of years. It was Trump. a long time in, in, in motion. And, and I, I mean, yeah, I would do it once. I forget his name now. The, the CMO of HSBC, John, oh, the first one when they formed HSBC, I remember talking to him. And he was an ex-agency guy for almost 40 years. And he said, I always waited for one client-side job. And it was HSBC. He did a terrific job. And I would, do, I would still consider doing one if the right one came along. But it probably won't. I mean, I'm nearly 50. And I'm relatively unemployable now, I think. You know, in the sense that my consulting life is good. But I have a very strong half-life of about four, four days of me. I'd hate to say it, I'm fantastically valuable. But by day five, six, seven, eight, I'm really not worth my fee. And so, you know, I've got a lot, but then it's kind of gone. Pete Ritson is reached yeah, no, on day four. Yeah, in a box, it? and then he's, oh, you know, day five, really? 
So I, I would worry a bit now. But yeah, there was one big job that I was recruited for, that, and I did fancy it. I was going to be in California. My wife was like, yes, we can do that. And so we were close. We were close. But I suspect that was it. I turned down a job at Harvard Business School to be a professor there once, and I always regretted that too. So I think they're my two lost loves, being a professor at Harvard and being the CMO of this large company. There's time yet. There's time yet. No, there really isn't, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you keep working beyond 60, you've done something horribly wrong. Like, sorry if you're 60, right? I don't intend... I do love marketing, but not enough to do it past 60. You know, you meet these guys stumbling around in their, in their mid-60s doing consulting or teaching, and it's like, you know... Whoa, it's a hard life. I mean, you can work as a marketing director in your 60s, that's fine. But being a consultant in your 60s and onwards is not fun. You see them at airports and stuff. You know what I mean? You sort of stand behind them waiting for them to fall over, you know? So I'm out at 60. You can quote me. I'll, write, I'll keep writing for you, but it will be increasingly gibberish. <laughs> Who's to say you haven't reached that point already? <laughs> I did promise this is your opportunity to ask questions of Mark. Uh, Jerry. Digital gurus spend a lot of time saying that everything has changed and that classical marketing thinking is dead. Why do experienced marketers believe them? Uh, they're outnumbered. The, the number of marketers who are well-trained and know, not every, we don't all know everything about marketing, right, but have a solid training and understand marketing, are outnumbered by the Muppets about eight to two. And so, it's true. Um, you know, we don't have... We don't have the dominance of our discipline, like being at a physics conference, but 80% of the people there are, are, are into astrology. You lose by simple numbers. We have people who are very proud to not have a training in marketing. Senior marketers boast about the fact that they don't want to recruit marketing people with a marketing training. They'd rather recruit people with a more interesting, varied background. It's just horseshit. That's why normal marketers are losing the battle because we, you know, most of the people in marketing don't really know much about marketing. We could just finish there. That's yeah, a, that's yeah, a yeah. <laughs> None of you have got any house, clue whatsoever you know, about what you're actually your doing. The apocalypse is coming. <laughs> We're all doomed. Right, here we are. How do you convince a board of mainly accountants to invest in brand and the longer term rather than just chase immediate ROI in digital marketing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you, you, I mean, I'm spruiking it, which is an Aussie word for selling it everywhere. The work of Field and Burnett is the great work of our time. I'm convinced of it. It's been around for a while, but it'll change how we do things in the future. And it's not a complicated theory. It's built on a lot of good data. And those two boys have been around a long time, but their time is about to come. And, and what that leads to, and you should be aware of this, is we are incredibly short-term. And we have to swing things back to a longer term. So this is a very apropos questionnaire uh, question. So the short answer is, how do you convince a CEO? You tell them that's where all the fucking money is, okay? Let me explain with a very famous joke. So there was a, a famous case where a bank robber, who's in his 50s, had been caught robbing banks, as usual. And he went before the judge, and the judge said to him, you're 50 years old, this is the third time you've been caught, and because it's the third time, I'm going to send you down for 25 years. I have to. I have to ask you before I send you down, why do you keep robbing banks? And the bank robber looked, looked down and then looked back up and said, because that's where all the fucking money is, right? And that's how you get a CEO to invest in the long term. You don't talk about the long term. You talk about money, profit. And if you talk about brand and long term, you're going to look like a fluffy idiot in front of someone that really doesn't care about either of those things. 
the first thing I say, and I do get to work for quite big CEOs and CMOs now, not always, but a lot of the time. The first thing you say when typically a marketer has brought you into a senior environment to introduce you, and I, without exception, the first thing I would say in every instance is, the reason I like marketing is it makes enormous amounts of fucking money. Exactly those words. And the reason I'm here is because I'm going to make you enormous amounts of money that you otherwise would not have made, right? And straight away, funnily enough, two things happen. The CEO goes, I like him, yeah? And then he goes, why aren't there more marketers like him, yeah? Don't talk about long-term or brand. They are means to an end. We are here to make money. More money than otherwise would be achieved without us. And I think most marketers don't see that, and they miss that point. And the reason CEOs and CFOs don't have time for us is because we keep talking shit about long-term and brand as if they're important. They're not. They're a means to the end of greater profitability, and we can do that really very well. You know, it's not about satisfying customers. That's, a, again, a means to an end. A satisfied customer makes us more money. That's why we're all here. That's what the Festival of Marketing is about. It's about making more money, and we can do that really well. And so I think that's the trick. You've got to talk about the money. And, and it's not a hard argument because, you know what? Building a strong brand and having a longer-term strategy does make you more money. And there's tons of data to prove it. But you have to start with the money and work backwards, or you'll lose them straight away. What marketers can learn from bank robbers, that's a, that's a new one on me. Just to warm to that point, though, and uh, your answer to it, is, is the burden of blame just on the marketer here? Because I'm sure lots of people in this room could tell you a story about how their finance director or procurement are pushing them to the bottom of the funnel and all you know, easily attributable things that can be proved on a spreadsheet. I mean, yeah. you know, how much responsibility do others in the organization need to take for this? No, zero. I mean, we have to defend our, our corner here, right? You can't blame CFOs. The CFOs are not evil in my experience. They are men and women that have just had to deal with numpties for their whole careers. If you'd have dealt, I'll give you a good example. When I teach MBA students, right, I get about 100 in my class. And the first class I teach, there's always someone in the top row who comes after me, right, who chases me to prove that I'm full of shit. And I know straight away that's going to be my favorite student. Because I'm going to break him, first of all, <laughs> like a golden retriever. And the reason I like him is because if I'd have sat through half of the professors full of shit that he sat through, I would assume I'm full of shit too. A CFO has been through so many useless fucking marketers talking shit for so long that clearly don't know what they're doing. We keep talking about, let's get more marketers in the boardroom. Have you seen them when we put them there? A fucking joke. Nine times out of ten, they're an embarrassment, right? Some of them don't want to be called the chief marketing officer. They want to be called chief growth officer, yeah? What? What? If you're a CFO and you've gone past 50, you've seen enough numpties now that you think pretty much every market is a numpty. And so we have to take responsibility. And the first thing you should do at that senior level is distance yourself from all the other numpty marketers that they've had to put up with. Because you should be better than them. And that's, I mean, I have much more sympathy with a CFO than a CMO. The CFOs do their job properly. And if you go back to a CFO, by the way, and go, I know you have these quarterly goals, but let me show you what my 12-month strategy is and give you some quarterly points. But I'm going, it's a 12-month strategy. They go, fine. If you show them zero-based budgeting, CFOs go, this is great. They're not the problem. The problem, we're the problem. We're not good enough, or most of us are not good enough. 
and CFOs are good enough. And I think, yeah, we, we can't blame others for the complete... I mean, you get, we get good CMOs, right? You've had David Weedon here today, for example, as a perfect example. But there aren't enough of them, and there's too many numpties floating around that destroy it for the rest of us. Somewhere in there is an inspiring call to action, I think, there. So. <laughs> What's your favourite brand and why? Let me ask that twofold, as a consumer, oh. uh, but also as a professional. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Start with, start with the as a professional. As a professional, I was lucky enough to work for many years on Dom Perignon. I love Dom Perignon. It's not my favourite wine, but I spent a lot of time in Audier, where the brand was born, working with very lovely people from that area, and um, that's my number one. And, my, and it's, I shouldn't say this, but the reason it's my number one is it's almost a complete marketing creation. I shan't say any more, but it's a myth, which is the French word for lie, but a beautiful lie that has such incredible power, you know? So, yeah, definitely Dom Perignon. And as a customer? Well, you're going to sound like a real wanker now. Um, <laughs> I really like Porsches. I've always liked Porsches, yeah? Do you have a Porsche? Right? I have a couple of Porsches, yeah. I thought, oh. I, I, thought I was going to sound like a wanker. Um, <laughs> one of my biggest concerns in the there. morning, I, I have two Porsches and they're both black and I go to work very early and my biggest concern, my biggest stress in my life is I might accidentally drive one of my Porsches into the other Porsche. That's the kind of... <laughs> I told you, I told you. You know, I, I have a nightmare about that. I've driven, I've driven one of my Porsches into my other Porsche. So yeah, I'm a mad, I'm mad for Porsches. Not necessarily the most expensive ones but they are the most expensive ones. And I'm getting the new electric car next year. So my wife is a hippie and doesn't really like Porsches, and, she's, and I said to her, look, don't worry, we're, we're going to get an electric car next year, but it's the new electric Porsche. I think we can all relate to these Porsche conundrums. We, we hear his pain, don't we? We really do. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Oh, I love this. What's the future of agency client partnerships? It's this bit I love, the, uh, the addendum. Uh, in the words of the Spice Girls, will two become one? Hashtag blurred lines. Let's focus on the first half of the question as opposed to the... The 90s references. It's a, it's a really good question. We're waiting for agencies to change more than they're changing, right? And I think they will have to. I think there'll always be a role for good agencies, but we've kind of, we're kind of moving on without them a little bit. The quality of the people it remains good, but the training and the experience and the tenure of agency people is a worry. And I, I, I you know... Again, John Hegarty was talking with you this morning, wasn't mm. he? And you think about BBH and, and the great work they do. But I, I worry that we may not have... Like when I was growing up, to work in an agency was slightly higher status than to work in a client, right? When you came out of, out of a marketing degree in the late 80s, going to GGT or BBH was, was definitely, for the marketing grads, at a higher level than Unilever P&G. You know, it, it was. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And so I, I worry that maybe the clients know more than the agencies. And that's a problem for agencies because they really have to know more than clients about this stuff. So the only, again, I'd tie it to this. I really believe good... I mean, I'm more affiliated with planners. I, I don't really have an interest in creative stuff that much, right? When, when normally when the agencies arrive into the clients I work with, I kind of leave because I get bored by advertising. I don't, I, you know, I don't get aroused by the 
all that creative stuff. You know, I'm done, really. When the strategy's over, I'm kind of out. But I like planners very much. I, I think you have to tie it with the long and the short of it. And again, I want to make everything about that because I think it's that important. And I think what we'll find is long-term brand building is going to be the thing clients will have to relearn. And I think agencies can teach them that because clients can't teach themselves that now. Because clients have really become, you know, the little micro-digital short-term activation people, right? The in-house, you know, someone's looking at a spreadsheet giving you an hourly update on efficiency, right? That's fine, but it's not the big, broad, risky, creative, target everyone, nuclear explosion that we need for brand building. And so I think that's where agencies maybe have to strike again. I mean, just picking up on what you said there, you said, I think, I think you said the uh, clients have no more. Is it a question of knowing more or just having more power? I mean, is that, is that the imbalance here? Yeah. But, but I think knowledge is power in our game, right? So I think the reason why agencies are able in the old days to go into a client and say, look, this is what you need to do, is they really... Do. I mean, John goes into a client and says, look, what you need to do is this. Everybody goes, fuck, it's John Hegarty. Right, we'll do that. You know, John could say, right, what you all need to do is throw yourself out of this window. But, all right, get the windows open, we've got to go. I don't think there's a generation under John and I'm, I'd be delighted to be proven wrong, that have that authority and credibility to be able to do that. You know, the lows of the world, being able to tell Tesco, you know, every little helps is the way you should go, and then following that advice 20 years ago. So I think that's where I would worry a little bit, but I hope agencies do have that ability and influence, because I think we need them back, because the short-termism doesn't come from the agencies, it comes from Google and Facebook, and clients that have a D in front of their title. What role Google and Facebook? I mean, Google and Facebook are both fantastically effective sales companies, right? Google have seeded their people into all the major clients, and, and they've taught... I mean, I worked a lot in newspaper marketing, so I've seen how media sales teams just got eviscerated by Google placing industry experts in clients. I mean, who sells uh, you know, advertising better? A media sales guy or your former boss who's now working for Google. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? So I think Google have done a brilliant job. Facebook have positioned a relatively weak but useful tool into something far more than it actually is, and they deserve tremendous credit. It's a, it's a victory of marketing. I mean, the fuckers at TV have the greatest tool on the planet, but no one really appreciates it, right? So I think they've done a great job, but because they've done such a great job of marketing themselves, they are BOFU, bottom of the funnel players, or MOFU, and they've dragged the balance a little bit that way, and the clients have happily gone with them. There's, there's a big debate, what's the best top of funnel tools? We could have it all day long, but you want outdoor and TV at the very top, and radio as well, right? So I think short-termism has privileged the digital tactics, and long-termism would help the other tactics get more get more play. So moving on from that, there was a question up here that I was going to ask because it was one of mine as well, but it's disappeared. But I think from memory, I'm going to interpret what I recall, which was what has been your... Well, let's, let me ask it in two parts. Do you ever have regrets? I mean... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean in life or... Oh, okay. ..whether or not you really can afford that third Porsche or whatever it is. But in, um, have you ever regretted something that you've written, that you've said, and if so, what and why? Uh, look, I, now, no. I mean, there were times that I've written things when I... I mean, I've been a, a columnist for nearly 20 years, and 
I, I'm sure early on there were things I've written where I was naively saying stuff that was wrong or personal. I try not to be personal. And, and it's interesting, I often get flack because I'm very, you know, Richardson's always very personal. And I, I really try extremely hard not to be. And I think everyone's trying their best. You can hammer decisions and you can hammer companies and decisions, but you shouldn't really hammer people, uh, at least, you know, on a personal level. So no, not really. I mean, and also I'm up, I'm up for being spanked. If, if I say something which turns out to be wrong or someone has the contrary point of view, I like a good spanking because I think that's what moves us forward, right? I really think what I'm writing is true. I don't write for the sake of... I mean, people will say to me sometimes, yeah, you really don't believe that. I fucking totally do at the time, but I'm up for negotiation about most things. There are other professors who will remain unnamed who is there... <laughs> It's their way or the highway, you know what I mean? And that's stupid. We all have a lot to learn, right? And if you really believe in science, science is looking for disproof. You can't prove a theory. You can only hang on to it until someone disproves it. So you're looking for people to say, no, that's shit, because then you can, you can learn. So I'm, I'm up for that, yeah. But um, when I started writing for marketing magazines, it was really apparent that nobody had a point of view that anyone would disagree with, right? I mean, I started writing for a, a much lower level uh, magazine called Marketing Magazine, 10 years before I wrote for Marketing. Where are they now? They stole me away, right? And when I started writing for Marketing, it was like, and this was like 98 or 97, the columnists would be like, why it's important to listen to customers, why you should build your brand in 1999. It was like, for fuck's sake, who is reading this? Never mind who's writing it. My statistic, if I'm honest with you, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's true or not, I think about 40% of British marketers hate me, I think 40% like me, and I think 20% don't know who, who I am. And I'm comfortable with the 40% that hate me. I can take it. I enjoy that. It's fine. It's groovy. My point is, name another British marketing professor. They might have 0.2%. I got 40. Now, I got 40 that fucking hate me, but I got 40 that like me. That's enough for me to make lots of money. I've applied the principles of marketing <laughs> to my life, right? You have to stand for something or no one's going to fucking notice you. I despair of British marketing academia. I, despair. I come from it, but I despair of it. They're so far up their asses that they're not part of the debate. Where are they? Where are they? I mean, Helen Edwards is an old mate of mine. She teaches, but she's not a real professor like me. She's got a PhD, but she's a pretend professor. Where are the academics at? Where are they? There's hundreds of them, you know, in the UK. They're writing for pointless journals, doing experiments on pointless shit, teaching pointless classes about topics that don't matter. That's what they're doing. They should be part of this debate, and they're not. Don't know enough about marketing. And here's the problem. My dad said this to me, right? My dad, who's... Look, if there's one or two marketing professors here, you're the exception, obviously, because you're here. <laughs> Why aren't all the other professors here? My dad used to say to me a long time ago, and he's a very simple man, my father, and often drunk, but he'd say to me, so if you were a professor of surgery, you would have done surgery, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So why do all them guys you teach with, why do none of them do any marketing then? It's a really fucking good question. How can you teach pricing and never have set a price? Oof. It's a really good question for people working in universities. How can you possibly claim to understand distribution if you've never done the distribution strategy? And that's the people that are teaching marketing. Now, they're doing their best, but they're not doing good enough. We have to be more practical for our young marketers. And at the moment, we're not. We're really not. I mean, this, I mean it's not just the UK, but UK is pretty bad. I had a debate with people from a large university in the southwest of England I went down from London Business School many years ago to talk to their marketing department about consulting and building their executive education group. And the debate was, 
Should we, as a marketing department, be involved with companies? Should we be involved with companies, or does that compromise us? Right? And I was with the head of HR from LVMH, Ian Hardy, my old mate, and Ian had to physically hold me back from like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? How can you teach marketing and not work with companies and not consult? What are you teaching people? It's a real problem. It's a real problem. Yeah? We, we think we're chemists in marketing. We'd like to do research rather than do practice. Law schools. Look at how law schools are run. The people that teach law, you know what they are? They're lawyers. really helps to teach law if you've been a lawyer. <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it? But I'd say 90% of British marketing academics have less than five years marketing experience, and most of them have zero. It's not good. It's not good. Well, it's true, right? I mean, it's not fucking... I mean, that's not contentious. It's obvious, right? Well, if anybody wants to contend... Contend. <laughs> contend away. Do you have a favourite marketing book? Uh, what, what would you recommend to the good people out there? Uh, well, it's an obvious Obviously. one right now. We keep talking about it, but I don't mind doing that. So I like the long and the short of it very much because it's the future of brand building, and I think its message is very important. And Les and Pete have just launched, I think yesterday, a new tome. I hope and suspect it's saying the same things as the first, because that's all they need to say repeatedly. So the long and the short of it, I think, has to be the top of your list. I'm a co-author of a book called Eat Your Greens. Eat Your Greens is getting a lot of love today. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it is. I, I, have, I haven't read it. I don't it's any good or not. My section is... <laughs> You've read your bit. I haven't. And Helen's, that. obviously. I haven't read that bit either. Helen Edwards has written some shit in the front. I don't worry about that. And then... I mean, you have to have read Byron's book and have a point of view on it because everyone will talk about it. So How Brands Grow has to be on your reading list. You have to cover it. I think Galloway in the US is the most exciting professor. He does a, he, he's written a book called The Four. Gets a bit angry, even by my standards. But his videos are sensational. I'd follow Galloway. I think he's the one to follow for me. What's your advice to B2B marketers with small budgets to get the best results? Oh, that's a great you question. Can, yeah. Uh, segmentation. So uh, segmentation is the key to B2B, always has been. If you can get your sales force to go to the right target segments uh, and with the right visit frequency and really get control of targeting and win the sales force over, the amount of money you can make is stunning. It's very different from B2C where there is a more complex story. In, in, you know, I worked a lot in hospital and medical marketing with national sales teams. If you can get into a, a B2B organization and do a proper segmentation, and in B2B, a proper segmentation is all the accounts have to be in one of the segments, named and understood. If you can get that done, and then you can reorg the sales force around a new structure where they're responsible for a particular segment, the amount of money that can be generated in a very short space of time, in my experience, is spectacular. So I think for me in business to business, the big win is A, having influence over the sales force, which is not easy. And I take that over marketing skill. If I work with a marketing director in B2B, their influence over the sales team is more important than their marketing skills. And then, yeah, a really good segmentation with a decent bit of influence on the sales force can be a spectacular win. So what's your favorite and least favorite campaign of the last year, let's say, and why? So I like very much what Lloyds Bank have been doing, the Black Horse campaign. I like it because it's codified and it has distinctiveness, but it also has emotions, big TV, broad, and I think it's, it's been beautifully executed. And, I, and I've definitely copied it for a couple of clients, which is the ultimate. What is it? Is this the 200 or yeah, the anniversary the one? the horse just running in the background through the various different scenes of, of, peop, of British financial life, I, I think is right on so many levels. The greatest campaign ever created is John Hegarty's work for Hagendas. 
it, it's still to this day, 20 years, 25 years later, enables Hagendest to have a price premium that they wouldn't otherwise have had. You know, the, the, the premiumness of Hagendest comes from that amazing print work of, of 25 years ago. So, yeah, but I like the Lloyds Bank work. That was done pretty well. That, that's about it at the moment. My and what about a, an absolute stinker? What's, oh, I, think, I know what you've written about, but... Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment I'm interested in Pret-a-Manger being maybe a bit fucked. So, <laughs> it's such a good brand. It's such a high watermark for us. And, and, of course, it's not an advertising case because they've never had to advertise because they were just so perfect. The people and the products and the packaging and the windows and the spaces were so perfect. There wasn't a need to advertise because they'd already said, look, this is who we are. And they were, for so many, you know, two decades, you just couldn't, they couldn't say they put a foot wrong. And I just have a sneaking, sniffing suspicion that wheels are starting to drop off that trolley. I can feel see, this tragic incident with the food ingredients is a function of something bigger, which is a brand like Pret must put everything, everything that they have on their label. And they're not doing that. And, and that causes terrible death. But also, it's how would they not have done that in the first place? So I just watched them a little bit. And I think Pret-a-Manger, unless someone gets hold of it quick, there's a long, big brands fall really fast when you fuck them up. That's a really big, strong brand. So I reckon that's one to watch. And my final question today, which is a, another traditional one that we always ask at the end of the po uh, podcast. So I'm, I'm going to anticipate that this is the sort of question you don't really like being asked, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, fucking hell. I really don't think marketing is your legacy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, here's the thing about this purpose of shit, right? All these people should go and have a fucking proper life. Like, I love marketing, and it's an honor to be here. I have far more important things, right? I've got a daughter and a couple of dogs, my wife as well, I should put her at the top of that list. <laughs> and your legacy is clearly your family and stuff. And in all of this purpose nonsense, I think what people forget is we have, like, normal lives. We can do a really good job and make a really good profit and a really good brand, and then we can go and do much more important things. You know, I support charities and not many, but a couple quite seriously, rescue dogs and stuff, which are very important to me, but they're nothing to do with my work. I do a really good job for my clients, and I make fuckloads of cash for them, and then I go home and do more important stuff at home, which is not evil or anything else, but I'm not ashamed of making a profit and making good products. And I'm in a minority now. It's not good enough. You know, you saw that ridiculous LinkedIn message from that silly president at Unilever, right? If you haven't seen it, you need to have a look at it. It's the most pathetic thing I've ever seen. She wants to get rid of all brand managers and replace them with brand activists so that then her father will be proud of her, right? What the fuck's wrong with working at Unilever and being a brand manager and making really good products that are really, you know, really satisfying to customers that make a really good profit for shareholders? I missed the memo where there was something shameful in that. I'm not saying we should kill animals or burn down trees. That's not part of this. What I'm saying is, when did it become shameful just to be a marketer. So my, I, my legacy will have nothing, I hope, nothing to do with marketing and everything to do with trees and, and things. <laughs> trees and things. The positive, uplifting uh, conclusion to the podcast that, that I was big, seeking was out. <laughs> I'm going to just interpret what you said there and just ask everybody just to be proud of what they do. Yeah. Because yeah. you might not be saving the planet or saving trees, but... Um, you are creating 
wealth, and that's not a bad thing not a bad to do. Thing. There's my two pennyworths to think about, uh, and for me to finish on. Thank you, Mark. That was Thank fantastic. Uh, and that's it. Thank you to my guest, Mark Ritson. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by something else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer, Laura Hyde. Next month's episode, we have Seth Godin, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can listen again on marketingweek.com to previous episodes, including Byron Sharp, Syl Saller, and Tom Goodwin. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.